0: In our search for meaning and purpose, where do we find our value? In our work? In our things? In our pleasure? Join us as we go through Chasing the Wind, our current sermon series, and discover what the book Ecclesiastes has to say about having the proper perspective about our lives. Happy New Year! It is a new year where we have new hopes, new dreams, and for some, maybe even some new perspectives. This is the time of year where we resolve to do better, to be better, to live fuller. Truth is every year we resolve to be better or to make changes, we often only see those resolutions last first three weeks to a month of the year. In our search for purpose and meaning in life, we resolve to do better, to be better, to live right. You know, we're going to We're going to eat right. We're going to shed those holiday pounds. We're going to spend less and get our financial house in order. We're going to get our budget going. We're going to be nicer to others and to ourselves. But what do we do when we do all these things and we don't get the results that we want? The outcome isn't what we'd expect. The things that we long for are still elusive to us. What then? In our search for meaning and purpose, your first question today is this. Where do you find your value? Where do you find your value? Do you find your value in your work? Like, hey, if I am better at work, I produce more, I show up on time, I stay late, I work harder, I'm going to get that promotion, I'm going to get that raise, right? Maybe it's in your things, You know, I'm going to create a budget, I'm going to stick to it, I'm going to pay my bills on time, I'm going to get out of debt, I'll buy that thing that I really, really wanted. You know, that sound system or that new phone or that new car. Do you find your value, meaning, and purpose in pleasure, in enjoying life? You know, are you asking yourself, if I could just go on that trip, man, all would be right in the world. Everything I finally dreamed about would come true. What if you do everything right, but the outcome falls short of everything that you'd hope for? What then? What if this is all there is? What if life is nothing but wash, rinse, repeat? How many of us have asked these questions time and time again to never find the answer or an answer that satisfies? How many times? How many different ways? Where do we find our value, meaning, and purpose? Well, good morning. Welcome to Riverbend Community Church Online. Thank you for joining us here today. My name is Mike DeSelm. I'm thankful to be kicking off this new series with you called Chasing the Wind. We're going to spend the next several weeks looking at the book of Ecclesiastes and see how it can inform our faith, shape our views and help us to find meaning, purpose, and value in life. I'd like to expend a special welcome to those of you who are joining us online for the first time. We would love to see you here in our physical location on any Sunday morning at your leisure. Please know that you're always welcome here. Whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, wherever you're at on your faith journey, we want you to come be a part of what God is doing here in this community, because there's a home for you here. There will also be a way for you to connect with us after today's service online, so please drop us a line anytime. Now, I don't know about you, but there's always been this restlessness, this uncomfortable tension in my life that I've always had to learn how to manage. This searching for, what is the meaning of this? Like, why am I here, in this place, at this time, right now? If all we do is live, die, wash, rinse, repeat, what if this is all there is? Why? What is the purpose? Please, please tell me that there is more to life than just this. Lucky for us, the Bible is not silent on this issue. The Bible is not silent on this question. I'd like to tell you a little bit this morning about a dude named Solomon who asked a lot of the same questions that we're asking in this series. And he also did a really good job of telling us where to not find the answers. Solomon was the son of a guy named David. You might know David. He was pretty popular in the Old Testament. He was king. He was the second king. He was also known as a dude after God's own heart. David had four sons, the fourth of which was a guy named Solomon, who he appoints to become his son. He becomes or the king, the third king of Israel. And in the book of 1 Kings chapter 3, we can see that there's this conversation that happens between God the Father and Solomon. Shows up to Solomon in a dream and he says, hey, Solomon, ask for anything that you want and it will be given to you. Now, for me, this is like one of those Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory golden ticket moments. It's like, woo-hoo, I'm in. You know, maybe you're Aladdin and you've got the genie and you're hoping that Robin Williams is going to show up. How many wishes do I get today, right? This is Solomon, and Solomon can ask for anything that he wants, anything, right? Does he ask for a long life? I would have, but no. Does he ask for incredible wealth? Uh-uh. Does he say, God, I want you to smite all my enemies? Doesn't do that either. Hmm. I want pleasant company for all of my days. Doesn't give ask that either. Instead, Solomon says, God, I I want a wise and discerning heart so I can learn how to govern your people. Because who besides you knows how to lead your people? Solomon's 15 years old when he's appointed the king. What 15 year old do you know that asks for these things? At 15, my head wasn't on that kind of straight. I wasn't thinking about those things. And yet, here's Solomon, already wise beyond his years, who asks God for even greater wisdom. And so, what does God do? He opens the floodgates. He opens the floodgates of blessing and pours out immeasurable things and more upon him. He gets peace with his enemies. He has immeasurable wealth. He has lots of pleasant company. And he has a long life. But most importantly, he got the wisdom to lead God's people. Something short-circuited in all of that, though, in that wisdom. Something changed for him. But... We do get the benefit of reading some of his wisdom. He wrote the book of Song of Solomon. He wrote uh, the book of Proverbs. And he wrote for us the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote about uh, trees and plants and wildlife. And world leaders at the time, They, they sought his company. And if they couldn't find his company, they would send envoys to go sit with him instead. Because people wanted to hear what he had to say. Now Solomon wasn't just the wisest dude to ever live, but he was also the richest. Let me tell you he was like rich beyond rich and it's not even close. Elon Musk, 270 billion. Nothing. Jeff Bezos, 200 billion or so. Benjamin or Bernard Arnault, 170 billion, Bezos, Zuckerberg, Page, the list goes on, Buffett, all those guys barely 100 billion dollars. Net adjusted value for King Solomon. I mean if you go to the websites and you look up like who's the richest dude who ever lived, and they're going to tell you it's King Solomon. And it's by a landslide. Adjusted value, $3 trillion, with a T. Trillion dollars. Crazy. 25 tons of gold showed up every year for him. And that wasn't just business dealings and, and tributes. It just kept pouring in. His throne, the place where he sat and spoke, where he was really wise, and everybody came and sat and listened to him, was made completely out of gold. It had ivory inlay. It had like six steps and like 12 heads of, of lions. It was crazy cool. All the goblets and housewares made out of gold. Let me put it to you like this. Solomon was so rich that silver, other precious metals like silver, had no value. They were the equivalent of rocks. Solomon had a massive army. He had a great navy. He had hundreds of horses and chariots. It was insane. But perhaps his greatest accomplishment with all of that wealth was that he built the temple for the Lord. He built the final resting place for the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, a place where Jews could go and gather and worship Yahweh, the one true God. But he also did some not-so-great things, like all of that riches that he had. He taxed his people kind of into poverty. That great temple that he built, he did it with slave labor. He sealed all all of his foreign agreements. He enjoyed peace in his time. He sealed these agreements by marrying the princesses and the daughters of great kings. He had over 700 wives, 300 concubines. I thought he was the wisest dude in the world. Who does that? Why? Why would you do that? Ultimately, it was Solomon's relentless pursuit of riches and multiple wives that would lead him astray. Each wife that he married would introduce him to a lowercase g God, not the one true God, Yahweh, that we read about in the Bible, but a lowercase g God that Solomon had to figure out how he could worship and incorporate into his pantheon. In all of Solomon's wisdom, he still had to test things out for himself. He had to decide what was true. The book of Ecclesiastes is, for us, about Solomon's, and ultimately us, search for meaning and purpose in life. It's written much like an interview between the scribe, who is our physical author, and Solomon, who is the teacher, who is sharing his experience. Throughout the book, Solomon examines a variety of ways, like really a lot of different ways. Like, is is it wisdom? Is it work? Is it pleasure? Is it things? Is it going places? Where do I find my value, my meaning, my purpose? And his conclusions might shock you. In our journey today, we're going to cover three common themes. Number one, that life apart from God is meaningless. Number two, that there is nothing new under the sun. And number three, time remembers no one. So this morning, we're going to start our journey in Ecclesiastes chapter one. Ecclesiastes is written a little bit like a Quentin Tarantino film for you fans of film. You find the conclusion first, and then we read through to find how he got to that point. It's going to reveal to us in bits and pieces. So open your Bibles or your Bibles apps. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's on the screen with us. And it starts out with this. It says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Right there, opening salvo, tells us who is authoring this book. Words of the teacher, the son of David. David had four sons and only one of them got to be king in Jerusalem. It was Solomon. So there's our teacher. Solomon is our teacher. And he says, Meaningless, meaningless says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. In his opening dissertation, Solomon illustrates for us what he sees as the futility of human existence. He says it's all meaningless. Some translations use the word vanity. It's all vanity. Now, to use the word once or twice, is to make your point, meaningless, meaningless, right? To say it three times, Obviously perturbed, but to say it four times in just the second verse of the book, Solomon must have been just beside himself with frustration at his conclusions that everything is meaningless. So much so that he uses the word meaningless 38 times in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Through all 12 chapters, meaningless shows up 38 times. The word that we get for meaningless it comes from the Hebrew word "hevel," or smoke, vapor, mist, Breath. It's visible. You can see it, but it doesn't have any substance to it. It's there, and then it's gone. It's fleeting. You, you, you can try to touch it, but it's gone just as soon as you reach for it. And it's telling us this is what life is about. Futility, frustration, absurdity, ridiculousness. Everything is hevel, he says. Now, it's thought by some that Solomon is along in years at the time of this writing. That he'd been a successful king in the eyes of so many people. But that he'd also lost his way from the deep, meaningful, restorative relationship with God the Father. And God has allowed Solomon to wander. And God is a jealous God. Understand this. He wants to be the sole focus of our attention. He wants to be the sole recipient of our adoration and of our worship. But God is also a just God. And what do I mean by that? When I say he's just, I mean he's morally correct. He's morally right. He's fair in all of his dealings with all things, including us, his most precious creation. And while he desires a deep, meaningful relationship with us, he doesn't force that relationship into a reality. He says, if you want to walk away at any time, the door is there. You're free to go. That said, should you choose to walk away, to do your own thing, to go it alone, you should be prepared to face some consequences. Sometimes those consequences are painful. Let me use an example. If you drive, and you drive fast, you're likely to get a speeding ticket. You're probably going to have to pay a fine. Now, you might get away with it for a little while, but eventually, everybody gets caught. I know you're saying to yourself right now, I've never been caught. I've never had a speeding ticket. Everybody gets caught at some point or another. Now, when you get caught, you can't say, that's not fair. I didn't know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go whatever speed I want. Well, there's these things called speed limit signs. They're like on every road around us. They're posted pretty obviously and they're usually pretty clear. Now, if you happen to find one that's covered and you get caught for speeding and you didn't know, the judge will probably let you off because that's fair. That's just. But you can't really say you didn't know what the speed limit was. It's posted everywhere. Now, I have a 16-year-old who's learning how to drive, and I'm reminded that the DMV thinks speeding is a big deal. And they drill into these young students, and they test them, what the different speeds are for school zones, residential districts, business districts, freeways, highways, divided, non-divided highways. Like, it's a big deal. Like, they know, my son knows what the appropriate speed is. So you can't say you didn't know. We all know. Now, when it comes to God and his creation, it's evidenced all around us. If this earth was one inch to the left or to the right, farther away from the sun, life wouldn't exist. Like, he's, he's given us his word. He's given us teachers. He's given us Jesus. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Like, God is speaking today. Like, you can't say you didn't know. Like, really? If you choose to go your own way, you're, you're choosing to go your own way. Solomon chose to go his own way, and he came to this conclusion, and it was this. He said, life apart from God is meaningless. Life apart from God is meaningless. You know, it's been said that a wise person learns from their mistakes, and a wiser person learns from the mistakes of others. I tell you that because it kind of reminds me of my relationship with my oldest daughter, Brianna. She reminds me of me in so many ways. I love how she cares for people and how she fights for people to be treated fairly and equally and with dignity and respect. I love how she fights for what is right and what is true. Sometimes, though, I wish she was a little less like me and I wish she could learn from my mistakes to not have to experience the same disappointments and misplaced trust, to not have to feel the pain of when you come up short or someone has betrayed you, to not have to know the sting of guilt of when you have broken the rules and been caught. A wise person learns from their mistakes. A wiser person learns from the mistakes of others. Maybe you have a friend or a loved one who is like that. Someone who has to fall down to make mistakes, to learn life's valuable lessons. Well, newsflash, folks. This is who Solomon is writing for. He's writing it for you and I today. He was the wise man who learned from his mistakes. He's inviting us to be wiser people to learn from his mistakes because he's realized that life apart from God is meaningless. Solomon walked away from God. He allowed his worship to be distracted and distorted. He might have been the wisest dude who ever lived, but that wisdom didn't stop him from being distracted by wealth, work, wisdom, pleasure. This opening salvo about meaninglessness is Solomon's shot across the proverbial bow. He's saying, Hey, everything is meaningless without God. Utterly meaningless. Everything life, money, wealth, work, stuff, popularity. Without God, it's all hell. Picking up in verse three of Ecclesiastes, chapter one, he says. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and then it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Solomon is telling us the parameters of his great experiment. Under the sun. Not in all the universe, not in all the heavens above, but here, Under the sun. So much so that he uses the phrase under the sun 29 times in the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. And I think it's incredibly important because when he makes his observations and describes his experiences, he's doing so from a distinctly human experience, a distinctly human perspective. He can only document what he saw with his own eyes. Under the sun. Solomon is telling us that right here, right now, if you look for the meaning of life, if you look for your purpose here on earth, if you seek to define your value in work, money, wealth, wisdom, pleasure, possessions, popularity, you're only going to find hell. It's all smoke and mirrors, folks. It's all smoke and mirrors. You are literally chasing the wind. He says that generations come and generations go, that there is a cycle of life that is unabated by human intervention, whether it is the sequence of the sun, the rotation of the earth, or the direction of the wind. Even nature's thirst is unsatisfied. Why else could the sea never be full? Just as we struggle to be filled, to find satisfaction, to find joy and meaning and purpose in the things of this world, Solomon keenly points out to us, Our selfish pursuit is just like that of nature's. We are never full. And it's not unique to the human experience. We all wrestle with this from generations past to generations to come. We all wrestle with the dissatisfaction. As we wrestle today, so too will our children and our children's children. Time, as Solomon notes, just keeps marching forward. It's an endless cycle of wash, rinse, repeat, Sun up, sun down, wind north, wind south, rain falls, it evaporates, it goes back up into the air and falls again. There's nothing new under the sun. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9, he says that what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say Look, this is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Solomon is arguing that what is observable in the rounds of nature is also true of all human endeavor. Nothing happens or is done that is truly Really new. That great song you just heard on the radio probably has the same four chords as thousands of other songs that you heard on the radio. We live in such a what have you done for me lately society that unless it's important to you, unless it impacted your life, unless it changed your life, you're not going to remember it. And I promise you your kids and your kids' kids aren't going to remember what you thought was important. It's just the cycle of life, folks. Time remembers no one. Time remembers no one. If you're lucky, you get your name on a building. You're lucky if 100 years from now, that name isn't erased and replaced with a different name, or it's decided that that name was too controversial, and that name has to come down. Time remembers no one. Think about it. Our, our, our journey to the moon is really no different than the journey to discover the continent of America. Both are explorations of distant places that require adventure and risk. But they both share the process of discovery. The process of discovery is not new. The invention of dynamite and the atomic bomb, they're both explosive, both destructive. One is really no different than the other. There's nothing new under the sun. What is true in the realm of nature, the constant repetition of previous accomplishments, is in essence true of the activity of all people. Everything produces this indescribable weariness and lack of satisfaction. That new phone you have, it's probably just the same phone with an upgraded operating system. Maybe it has a faster processor. You know, the, the pandemic that we're living through really no different than the Spanish flu or the bubonic plague or other pandemics that have happened in history before. There's nothing new under the sun. Time remembers no one. Have we forgotten, or is all of this brand new and unprecedented to us? Just as there's nothing new, Solomon points out that death is the great equalizer, that those who die are soon totally forgotten by the generations that succeed them. Playwright Robert Bolt wrote it like this in A Man for All Seasons. He said, Death comes for us all. Even at our birth. Even at our birth, death does but stand aside a little. And every day he looks towards us and muses somewhat to himself, whether or not that day or the next, will he draw nigh? It is the law of nature. It is the will of God. We live and we die. It is the cycle of life. Even in death, everything is meaningless. You can't take anything with you. Now, my wife said to me the other day, Mike, this sounds so depressing, so cynical, so bleak. Is really, is this the message that you want to start the new year off, that you want to encourage people with? I said, no, no, I'm not done. There's, there's more to the story. There's got to be more to the story. I tell you that there is hope if you read between the lines of everything that we've talked about this morning you're, you'll see that there is a place where life is not meaningless where it's not hevel where life is not chasing the wind it's found in God the Son Jesus Christ in John chapter 10 Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples and the religious lead of the day and he's using this This illustration that, hey, I'm like a shepherd and you are all my sheep. And he says this in chapter 10, verse 9. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that's wealth, it's possessions, it's popularity, it's stuff. That's all hevel. It's come to steal your joy because the new thing that you have is not going to be new in a year from now. That cool trip that you went on time is going to forget. That great job that you have serving others will be forgotten in the generation to come. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't find wastelessness in your life. Come to me. I'm the gate. You will be able to come in and out. You will be able to find pasture, to find rest for your weary soul and the restlessness of your questions. He says, come to me. I want you to have life to the full. And I can give you life to the full if you follow me, if you serve others, if you love the way that I love, if you care the way that I care. God the Father is calling. He's inviting each of us to have relationship with him through God the Son. Jesus walked among us. He saw heaven every day. Jesus lived life with us on earth. He saw what it was to be destitute and despair and have frustration and to wrestle with these questions and find value and meaning and purpose. And he's inviting us to share in his work, to be light, to be life, to be hope for others. Jesus is the only gate by which humanity can enter into God's rest. Faith in Jesus has given me the place where I found my rest. It's the place where I have found meaning and value and purpose in this life. Serving Jesus is the only place where I have found restlessness, wash away and be overcome with joy because of my gifts that he's given me to to, to teach, to serve, to encourage, to love. And he's inviting you to find that same place of rest in him. I don't think Solomon knew it at the time, but he was pointing to us, to God the Father, to God the Son, to find rest for our weary souls. Solomon walked away and he came to the conclusion that life apart from God was meaningless. In his grand experiment, in his search for value and meaning and purpose, Solomon realized that honoring God, serving God was the most meaningful thing that he could do. It's the most meaningful thing that any of us could do seeing that there was nothing new under the sun, Solomon realized that meaning wasn't found here on earth, but it was found in heaven above with God the Father. Though time remembers Solomon, I think he's the exception to the rule, but that exception is so that we would learn from his wisdom, that we would be wiser people to learn from his mistakes, because he saw that everything in this life was temporary, but God is eternal. And there is meaning in worshiping an eternal God that serves and loves. So as you look at your life this morning, as you get ready to make your resolutions for the new year, where have you found your value, your meaning, your purpose? Is it in the things, the stuff? Is it in the work? Is it in the the possessions, the, the phones, the news? Is God inviting you right now to say, Hey, all of that is Hevel, and I'm inviting you into a relationship with me so that you can find value, meaning, and purpose. This place, this life, it's not hell. It has joy, and it's found in Christ the, F- the Son. Would you pray with me, please? <sighs> Father God, we love you. We love you because you loved us first. And though we will never be able to repay or give back enough to show our gratitude for your love, We offer you our hearts this morning as the, the greatest thing we can give. We offer you our lives. Help us to see where meaning and value is found in life, where purpose is found. Not in the things of this world, not in the temporary things around us, but in your eternal light, in your eternal love, in service to the eternal King, the one true God, Yahweh, God the Father. God the Son, thank you for resting on a cross that we might have relationship with God the Father. We're so thankful that you rose again and beat death that we might have life eternal. God the Spirit, we ask that you continue to wrestle within our hearts, provide calm and peace to our restlessness, and point us to the way, the truth, and the life everlasting. We love you. We praise you, God. In the name of Jesus, we all said, Amen.